BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And now even Donald Trump says Alabama went too far. Hey, what do you say, everybody? What do you know? It's a Monday, May 20. And here we go. The Bill Press Show live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and reaching out to you nationwide, coast to coast, from our studio here on Capitol Hill with all the news of the day. So good to see you today. Hope you had a great weekend. I'm telling you, spring really came to Washington, D.C. finally this weekend. After almost a month of a cold spell and a lot of rain, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful weekend here in the nation's capital. I hope it was wherever you happen to be. And good weather or not, hope you had a chance to uh, kick back, recharge your batteries, spend some time with uh, friends and neighbors and family, and uh, now are ready to... Uh, Saddle up again for all the big fights and the big stories and the big news of this week. Uh, a lot going on this week. And uh, this is round two of infrastructure. Yep, it's infrastructure week all over again. Round two, round three, four, round five, two, six, uh, yeah, we've got a couple of them. Of the latest round of infrastructure, it's round two uh, with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer going back to the Oval Office on Wednesday to see if President President Trump is going to come through with his commitment, which he made the last time to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure. <laughs> I don't trust him. I don't think they should trust him. We'll see how that works out. Uh, that's just one of the stories we'll be talking about today. Good to have you with us. Look forward to hearing from you, as always, on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, let's go to England. Yes. There is a uh, chain restaurant there called Hawksmoor. Uh, it's like a steakhouse. They have like a really big wine list. So some customers came in last week and they ordered a very nice bottle of red wine to come to the table. It was about $335 Whoa. for this bottle of wine, right? Very, very nice bottle. Except here's the thing. 
They served them the wrong bottle. They brought them a much, much nicer bottle worth much, much more. They brought them a bottle that was worth almost $6,000. Oh, come, come on. Anybody who pays that much for a bottle of wine is insane. It's too much. Well, these customers did not pay $6,000. They ordered the cheaper wine. They served them the more expensive wine, and they didn't catch it until afterwards when Hawksmore tweeted to the customer who accidentally got the very expensive bottle of wine last night. I hope you enjoyed your evening. To the member of the staff who accidentally gave it away, chin up. One-off mistakes happen, and we love you anyway. Oh, So they kept the server who made the mistake. They said it was a really busy night. There were lots of mistakes made that night. And so no one's going to lose their job. No one's going to have to pay. They just sort of gave them this very, very expensive bottle of wine. I mean, oh, yeah. $6,000 for a bottle By the of way, wine. If, would you slip up on a $6,000? How many $6,000 bottles of wine do they sell, right? <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, yeah. No, good point. Good point. Well, believe it or not, Bill, the uh, rain for Avengers Endgame at the top of the weekend box office finally came to an end. Uh, John Wick 3 is the new number one movie in America. It pulled in $57 million as we go. It's a big, big weekend. Avengers Endgame, of course, was uh, in second place. They only pulled in a measly $29 million. Uh, uh, but that is yeah, enough. But- that is enough to put it at the highest grossing domestic movie of all time. Oh, my God. Will it yeah. beat Avatar's okay. international record? They're very, very close, and it looks like it's going to be sort of a neck-and-neck race here. You haven't seen it yet, I guess. There's not, not a going, movie not There's not a movie out there right now that I want to see. Is that right? I can't think I mean, of one. I can't. Yeah, I, I get that. I get no. that. I mean, I saw the Avengers movie. But, but that's not on my list, and by the way, they don't need my money. <laughs> they clearly don't need your money. Yeah, good point. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Okay, one brave Republican stands up and says it's time to impeach Donald Trump. One Republican and counting. Will anybody follow him? Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday? Monday, May 20. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. Welcome to the program here. It is the Bill Press Show. We are live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. We are live with you everywhere in this great land of ours on the radio and television and online to bring you up to date on the news of the day, give you a chance to talk about it, and give you a chance to meet our guests and hear their point of view, all from a progressive point of view. Of course, that's what the Bill Press Show is all about. Good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, I hope you had a great weekend and are ready to dive in with both feet into the news of the day as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on television on Free Speech TV, looking good in TV land and looking good on the radio today, statewide in Indiana and on Indiana Talks and Chicago and all over the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago. Uh, and don't forget, we're heading down the home stretch here in terms of the Daily Show. The Daily Show wrapping up uh, a week from Friday on May 31st. And then we switch into podcast mode 
Uh, get ready for that because I want you to just woo, move right over into our new format. Very, very, very exciting uh, starting first week of June. So you want to sign up for our podcast if you haven't already done so. Go to BillPressShow.com, sign up for the podcast. And follow us on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show, so you won't miss a beat as we move into the exciting new format. Uh, yes, indeed. Lots and lots to talk about. Matt Ford's going to be joining us, by the way, from the Staff Repiter reporter, uh, covers justice issues for the New Republic. Steve Shepard, our favorite pollster uh, from Politico, will be here uh, to bring us up to date on all the latest uh, 2020 news, uh, with Joe Biden still leading the polls. And then from Roll Call, uh, senior writer Niels Lesniewski, rather, on the uh, latest on Congress and what we can expect on the impeachment front and any other. The big news, of course, broke over the weekend when Justin Amash, a four-time congressman now, I believe, from Michigan, he's 39 years old, became the first Republican uh, in the House or the Senate to stand up and say, hey, I read the Mueller report. It doesn't say what Donald Trump said. It doesn't say what Bill Barr said. It is. It doesn't say what Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell said. It is a blockbuster. It proves that Donald Trump did, in fact, commit impeachable acts and should be held. He should be impeached by the House of Representatives. That, according to, again, Congressman Justin Amash from Michigan, uh, he said, first of all, that he stood out. By the way, <laughs> You and I could argue about, okay, who is the um, most intelligent member of Congress? Or who is the most effective member of Congress? Or who is the nuttiest member of Congress? Or whatever. But there's no doubt who is the loneliest member of Congress today. The loneliest member, certainly in the Republican caucus, is Justin Amash. But I would also say... He is the most, also the most courageous uh, member of Congress to stand up and take on this president and take on his Republican leadership uh, is, um, is really, really huge. It is very, very important. And Justin Amash said, um, by the way, he, he's somewhat of a contrarian. He was one of 14 Republicans who did join Democrats in condemning Donald Trump's use of emergency declaration uh, to, to kind of, sort of, pretend to pay for the wall. Uh, Justin Amash said, no, this was not a proper, this was an abuse of presidential authority, which it is, which the courts will prove is true. Uh, and he voted with Democrats on that. So he's been known to uh, differ with Donald Trump before, uh, but this, of course, is huge. Uh, and Justin Amash, first of all, he said he differs from all of his Republican colleagues in the sense that he read the book. He read the report. He read all 448 pages. They clearly did not. Mueller, I mean, uh, in a series of tweets about this, uh, Justin Amash said, quote, few members of Congress even read Mueller's report. Their minds were made up based on partisan affiliation. In other words, Trump says, here's what it says. Bill Barr says, here's what it says. 
The Republican National Committee chair, Ronald McDaniel, says, here's what it says. So all the Republicans, without reading it, just said same thing. Talking points, repeat, repeat, repeat. But, but Amash says, I read it, and he found that, his words, Donald Trump engaged in specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment. That's, that's the money shot, if you will, on that. His actions meet the threshold for impeachment, no doubt about it. And Amash answer, responds to the, what he knows is going to be the, 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 the talking point. Well, Robert Mueller didn't prove that Donald Trump committed a crime. Doesn't matter, says Justin Amash again in one of his tweets. Impeachment, I'm quoting him now, impeachment, quote, simply requires a finding that an official has engaged in careless, abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. Boom. End of quote. End of story. Absolutely. Careless, abusive, corrupt, and dishonorable conduct. Impeachable offenses. And if Amash is critical, uh, doesn't, if he doesn't spare Donald Trump, he doesn't spare Bill Barr either, the Attorney General William Barr. Uh, he's, he says that Barr, uh, again, he's absolutely correct, that William Barr deliberately misled the Congress, deliberately misled the American people in that four-page summary and in his news conference where he pretended that the report said things it did not, that he, he Barr, pretended that the report was much more favorable to Donald Trump than, in fact, it is when you read the report. So good for Justin Amash. And, and, let, me, and let me tell you something. Um, well, for, let's get a little comment about this. Um, uh, first from um, a Democrat and Republican, Adam Schiff, the uh, California Democrat friend of mine who was the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, um, and who has not been pushing impeachment himself as part of the leadership. He's been going along with Nancy Pelosi that we have to have these hearings first. But Adam Schiff yesterday on Face the Nation said he still respects Justin Amash. I respect what Justin Amash uh, is doing and has said. He showed more courage uh, than any other Republican in the House or Senate. Uh, True, true, true. Uh, But Adam Schiff says himself, and, with this, and the leadership not quite there yet. Can an impeachment even be potentially successful in the Senate? Uh, we see no signs of that yet. That's true. We'll get to that point in just a minute. Uh, among Republicans, Mitt Romney said um, he admires uh, Justin Amash, but he's not ready to make a decision yet. I have not made uh, any decision on that front, so we'll we'll wait. This is way too early for that. Right. So uh, whether he would vote to convict or not, not sure yet. Uh, as far as Justin Amash, admires his courage. My own view is that uh, Justin Amash has reached a different conclusion than I have. Uh, I respect him. I think it's a courageous statement. <laughs> but I, I believe that to make a case for obstruction of justice, uh, you just don't have the elements that are uh, evidenced in this uh, document. Uh, And then, of course, Donald Trump cannot resist. Uh, He had to mid-morning yesterday. uh, He tweeted out. By the way, he tweeted this out while he was either on his way 
to or on the golf course. I was just wondering when he actually. I mean, to did be that. fair, most of his tweets come while he was on or on his way to the yeah, golf course. Yeah, that's true. Because he plays so because much golf. Because he plays so much golf, right? Anyhow, uh, he, he he tweeted, "Never a fan of Justin Amash. <coughs> pardon me, a total lightweight who opposes me and some of our great Republican ideas and policies just for the sake of getting his name out there." Yeah. Donald Trump, <laughs> talk about <laughs> people in living glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Uh, Donald Trump accusing somebody else of trying to get his name out there and trying to get some publicity. And he went on to say, Justin is a loser who sadly plays right into our opponent's hands. So, uh, and Kevin McCarthy, uh, the minority leader in the House, also went out there trying to downplay and almost ridicule Justin Amash's um, statement saying it's not going to make any difference. Well, you know, to a certain extent, they may be right. It's not going to make a huge amount of difference in this respect. Democrats don't need the votes in the House. They got enough votes in the House to impeach Donald Trump. Justin Amash is just one more vote. Yes, he's a Republican vote. Uh, but it doesn't change the arithmetic. It doesn't change the math in the House. You tell me you got one, two, three, four, five Republican senators in the Senate who say the same thing. I read the report. Bill Barr is wrong. Donald Trump is wrong. These are impeachable offenses. We should impeach him. Then we got a deal. Then that's a game changer. But Justin Mash is not a game changer in the sense that it changes the basic math. But still, it is huge. This is hugely significant, significant what he did Be- for a couple of reasons. One, because he proves, again, that everything Donald Trump said and Bill Barr said and all the other Republicans have said about the report is a big lie. The report does not say no collusion. The report says Lots and lots of collusion. No criminal conspiracy, but lots and lots of collusion. The report does not say no obstruction. The report says lots and lots of obstruction. Ten different cases where Donald Trump tried to obstruct justice. The report doesn't say he's not guilty of obstructing justice. The report says I'm not going to reach that decision because my hands are tied because of a Department of Justice ruling that you can't indict a president of the United States. But he could be indicted afterwards, report points that out, after he leaves, or Congress could impeach him. So it's, again, huge what Justin Amash is doing because he is calling the lie, exposing the lies told about the Mueller report by Donald Trump and, and all the rest of them. And it's also huge because being a Republican, uh, he could very well influence other like-minded Republicans, and there are many of them, to do what he did, read the report, and then be willing to take the risk of having somebody challenge him in the primary, but take the risk of taking on Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, final point on that for me is that it is so refreshing to hear one Republican uh, stand up and actually read the report, and it is so refreshing to hear one Republican uh, and to see one Republican with the cojones uh, to take on Donald Trump, even though he knows that that means probably most certainly, and there's already one state representative in Michigan 
who has said he's going to challenge uh, Amash. I'm sure the RNC will give his challenger money because he dared take on Donald Trump. But he put he, Justin Amash willing to put his country uh, above his party. Uh, coming from California, I immediately thought of Congressman Pete McCloskey, who was a Republican congressman back in the Nixon days, who uh, was the first and only Republican to challenge Richard Nixon. Uh, was even thinking about running against Richard Nixon, but never did. But he stood up and said, one first Republican to stand up and say that what Richard Nixon did was also uh, guilty, I mean, uh, met the threshold of an impeachable offense. So it was Pete McCloskey back then, it's Justin Amash uh, today. Good for him. Uh, meanwhile, Interesting response, um, continuing response to what happened, and we talked a lot about this last week in uh, in Alabama, uh, where the Alabama twenty five men, twenty five white men, uh, all were all the votes needed in the state senate to pass the most extreme anti-abortion measure uh, in the country, allowing no exception for rape or incest, a measure that has already been uh, de- declared going too far by Kevin McCarthy, Republican leader in the House, Pat, crazy Pat Robertson. And over the weekend, even Donald Trump said the Alabama measure uh, went too far. Um, And it's, you know, totally wrong for a couple of reasons. Wrong, number one, because it just violates everything we've come to accept and believe and the Constitution protects about women's rights. This would just... This takes away the fundamental right recognized by the Constitution that the person who makes a decision about her own body should be that woman herself and nobody else. Um, So it violates that, takes that away, rolls back the clock. The other thing is politically, as I mentioned last week, it is really suicidal for the Republican Party. Uh, I did a little research over the weekend on, on the women's vote. Okay, Again, it was women made the difference in 2018. More women voted, more women got involved in politics, more women ran for office than ever before. And that's that was what fueled the Democratic victory, particularly in the House, when picking up 40 seats. In 2018, women voted for Democrats, Democratic votes by women. 59% of women voted for Democratic candidates across the board. 40% voted for Republican candidates. This is in 2018. And what was the major issue? Health care. What is this whole abortion thing? Health care issue and a right of privacy issue beyond that. Uh, If you look at because women vote more frequently than men, more women vote than men, the gender gap among women uh, over men voting for um, Democrats as opposed to Republicans is 23%. So a 19% difference in voting Republican-Democrat, 23% in the gender gap. Women with a college degree, Republican women with a college degree, 59% of them voted for Democrats, 39% voted for Republicans. So already Republicans have, as a result of 2018 and their position of trying to repeal Obamacare, already they have a 19, 23, 20% loss among women, gap among women, deficiency among women, 
and they're making it worse by now going out and becoming the extreme party wanting to roll back Roe v. Wade, which is not just in Alabama. It's in 14 other states that are considering the so-called, like Georgia, the fetal heartbeat bills. And by the way, when Donald Trump says or Kevin McCarthy says that, well, we don't want to uh, go as extreme as Alabama. We just want to ban abortion except for rape, incest, or life of the mother. That's still that's still wrong because it still fundamentally, again, denies women the right to control their own bodies, which Bernie Sanders down in Birmingham, Alabama, over the weekend said, this is the core issue, and let's not forget it. All across the United States, there is a well-funded attack coordinated by right-wing extremists to deny women the right to control their own bodies. And Bernie Sanders says what these states want to do with so Donald Trump's support is get this in front of the Roberts Supreme Court and roll back the clock. We are not going backwards. We're going to go forwards. You know, the thing that I love about this, right, and, and I know there are a lot of candidates and I haven't figured out who I'm going to vote for yet, and I think there's still plenty of time to figure that out. But the thing that Bernie has presented to the Democratic Party is when you go into the perceived enemy's territory and you talk to them and you present ideas and you explain what the Republicans are doing to them and what they're trying to take away from them, it works out pretty well. Yeah. You actually yeah. have to engage these people, right? Like, we've yeah. talked about this before, the whole hillbilly elegy thing, right? That there's, like, a group of voters that Democrats will never get, and they should just ignore them and forget about it and move on. And I think that is just the biggest load of BS. Total. And, yeah. I, and you look at what Bernie right. Sanders has done and other candidates are doing. I don't want to put it all on Bernie, but you go into these into these states, you fight for your ideas, and you'll win a lot of people over. And good for Bernie. He was uh, got a lot of criticism the last time for not having a Southern strategy, if you will, uh, ignoring uh, the Southeast. Uh, this weekend, he was down in uh, Alabama and uh, Georgia, Augusta, I think. Georgia. Augusta, yeah. Georgia. Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, and so you're right. He's taking his message right into... And by the way, those aren't just red areas of red <laughs> states. Those are very, very red areas Boy. of red states. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and talking about, by the way, uh, candidates going into, uh, if you will, enemy territory, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, did a town hall on uh, Fox News with Chris Wallace as the moderator. Uh, and Buttigieg, like others, criticized for going on Fox News, but he said, no. This is where you got to take the message. You know, a lot of folks in my party were critical of me for even doing this uh, with Fox News. And, and I've, I, I've heard that. <laughs> and, and I get where that's coming from, especially when you see what goes on with some of the opinion hosts on this network. I mean, when you got Tucker Carlson saying that immigrants make America dirty, when you've got uh, Laura Ingram comparing detention centers with children in cages to summer camps, summer camps, then there is a reason why anybody has to swallow hard and think twice before participating in this media ecosystem. But I also believe that even though some of those hosts are not always there in good faith, I think a lot of people tune into this network uh, who do it in good faith. And, and there are a lot of Americans who my party can't blame if they are ignoring our message because they will never hear it. So he was there to deliver the message and did a good job of it. By the way, speaking about candidates uh, campaigning in the South, 
Uh, Bill de Blasio, the latest Democrat to get in the race, uh, of course, the mayor, the sitting mayor of New York City. Uh, so uh, we just heard from the sitting mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and Bill de Blasio says he was in the South, too. He's in South Carolina, uh, the third, yeah, the third Democratic primary, second primary, third state, uh, because the Iowa caucuses. At any rate, Bill de Blasio says, guess what the people of South Carolina want to hear about? They want to hear about New York City. When I've talked to folks all over South Carolina and I tell them the things we've done in New York, it, it's important to them. Really? <laughs> Peter, you're from South I'm Carolina. From South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of family members down in South Carolina. And you know what they tell me all the time? I wish I lived in New York City. I, I really <laughs> want to run our government the way New York City runs their government. Yeah, I just I get tired of hearing it every Thanksgiving. And uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of activity on the 2020 front over the weekend. Don't have time to bring it all to you, but uh, maybe um, among the candidates. It was Joe Biden who got most of the attention, having his, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, <coughs> sorry, a third rollout, if you will. Uh, the first was the video. Uh, the second was the big speech at a big union hall uh, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And the third was this weekend uh, a big rally outside of, uh, near the Pennsylvania Art Museum, well, again, in Pennsylvania. I, I, I really applaud it, all of the candidates for having multiple campaign oh, they all, they're all, They all do it. it. So yeah, I'm not criticizing yeah. anybody, but, like, there are multiple campaign kickoffs, right? right? Yeah. But this one was the big campaign kickoff. So it was sort of boom, 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 and Joe said, why am I running for president? Three reasons. The first is to restore the soul of the nation, the essence of who we are. That was the video. I mean it. And the second is to rebuild the backbone of this nation. And the third. That was the union rally. To unite this nation. One America. One America. And that was his message yesterday, for which he got some criticism from some of the other Democrats saying, we don't need somebody who's going to bring us together. We need somebody who's going to take on Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden says, basically, Trump takes on himself. If the American people want a president to add to our division, lead with a clenched fist, a closed hand, a hard heart, to demonize your opponent, to spew hatred, they don't need me. They've got President Donald Trump. And the question about, uh, you know, Donald Trump is already calling him low-energy Joe. Some people are saying, you know, without making... Uh, age an issue they do indicate you know he's a little older and is he really up to uh, a presidential campaign and really up to the duties of the office of the white house joe biden says hey look at me nobody's going to work harder no one's going to work longer no one's going to campaign harder to win your hearts your trust and your support than the son of Catherine eugene Finney from scranton pennsylvania <laughs> Joseph R. Biden Jr. from Delaware. <laughs> All right, there, there he is. I think it's smart, by the way, for Biden to uh, to locate his campaign in Philadelphia. Um, you know, Donald Trump stole Philadelphia from the Democrats in 2016. Uh, got to get it back if we're going to win the White House in 2020. And uh, so that's what where Joe Biden is sort of focusing um, his efforts. It's interesting. So th- again, there's a lot, there's a lot of criticism. Of some people on the left saying Joe's too much in the middle. 
Uh, we need somebody who's more to the left. We need somebody who's going to be taking on Donald Trump more than talking about working with Republicans or unity or getting things done. You know what, folks? That's what primaries are all about. And uh, again, like Peter, you, you were just saying, I haven't decided who I'm going to support any, either yet. I want to see. I want to see these candidates in the first debate. I want to watch them on the stump. I want to see. I want to assess which one I really believe can take the take the message to Donald Trump and beat the, the crush Donald Trump. I almost. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Caught myself there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure who that is yet, uh, and whether it's a Biden more in the middle or Bernie more or Elizabeth Warren more to the left or Amy Klobuchar more to the middle. I, I I want the candidate, male or female, white or black, gay or straight, younger or older, who can beat Donald Trump. That's the one I want. Uh, when? We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with Matt Ford. Uh, talk about, now, where are we with getting either Robert Mueller or Don McGahn to testify in front of the, uh, Senate, or the House Judiciary Committee? Matt Ford from New Republic joining us next year. Quick break. We'll be right back again. We want to hear your comments on the news of the day on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, May 2nd, uh, May 20. Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. And thanks for being part of the program, uh, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. And brought to you today by the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. There's four unions all getting together and forming what they call the Smart Union. Under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, members of the Smart Union giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. You bet. Check out the website at smart-union.org. Just reading uh, during uh, during the break here online that uh, Donald Trump has uh, lashed out against Fox News. Peter, we were talking about Peter Bu- uh, Pete Buttigieg going, having the town hall on Fox News. Uh, Donald Trump uh, accused Fox News of playing into the enemy's hands by yeah. giving Pete Buttigieg time on He's very Fox upset. News. He was very, very upset, upset. <laughs> about that, that they, had, that they gave him a whole hour, and he said Fox is losing its audience by covering the 2020 Democratic candidate. They should talk about nothing but, but me, 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 <laughs> all the me. Time. It's all about me. Yes, indeed. How about it? Matt Ford joins us from the New Republic staff writer and covering particularly uh, uh, justice and law, law and justice issues, whatever. Hello, Matt. Great to see you. Great to be back. Are we in the middle of a constitutional crisis? It certainly feels like it, uh, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the, the big answer here is not necessarily. Um, there's certainly a lot of friction right now, uh, you know, between Congress over these subpoenas, between the president. Uh, and there's a lot of things he's doing that are sort of skirting the edges of what we believe to be constitutional governance. But we haven't really seen one of those sort of defining clashes like we saw during Watergate, uh, like we've seen at other moments through American history where everything seems to be on the line. Well, uh, haven't we? I mean, um, was it Thursday or Friday? Uh, the House... Uh, Ways and Means Committee had issued a subpoena uh, to the Treasury Department, to the IR- IRS, and then the Treasury part of the Treasury Department to re- release Donald Trump's tax returns. Mm-hmm. And Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, said, "No, we're not going to do it." Right? I mean, uh, the House Judiciary Committee wants Don McGahn, White House Counsel, to come and testify, and the White House said, "No, we're not going to do it." So, aren't they already asserting? executive 
powers over whatever Congress wants to do, wants to do? Well, yeah, there, there, there's two aspects to that. One, one is that you know they're going to go to the courts, and the courts will eventually resolve that. And in some of these cases, you know, like with the tax returns, it seems pretty likely that that Congress has a good shot of prevailing. Uh, and then in some of these cases, like McGann, where there are issues of executive privilege involved, it, it might be a bit shakier ground. Um, now, if Trump defies a court ruling to that effect, then absolutely it's a constitutional uh-huh. crisis. Right. Um, <clears throat> but until then, I, I, I think the, the friction there is, is, is it's, it's bad, but it's not quite that bad yet. Uh, the other aspect of this, and, I th- and you, you touched on this, is that you know, when we talk about executive privilege, part of the crisis is that the presidency is this powerful in the first place. Uh, and this is something we've seen a lot in other aspects of, of Trump's administration, where the Congress ceded so much power to the executive branch over the years, uh, and then it's suddenly surprised when Trump wields it like this. And, you know, Democrats know this from immigration, uh, from all the stuff he's done on the border, but Republicans know this too. They know this from all these tariffs that he's imposed uh, through authority that Congress just gave up years and years ago. I mean, every you know, a high school student learns about like the Smoot-Hawley tariff and all the tariffs mm-hmm. that Congress passed in the old days. Those were things that Congress passed. And over the last, you know, 50 years, Congress has said, actually, we'll just let the president do all that. Uh, and so what we've seen really in Trump's era is how the, that has really come back to haunt this country. Well, um, so you hear this phrase, unitary executive, yeah. right? And that seems to be what Trump is asserting, which means what? Well, so there's a few variants of it. There, there's the main, the overarching theme is that, you know, the Congress, the, the Constitution, rather, uh, vests all the executive power in the presidency. Uh, and, you know, it says that the, the executive power shall be vested in the presidency in that. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean that the president has virtually no uh, checks once that power is vested? Does that mean he can basically do whatever he wants with it? Um, that varies. Some people would say, well, you know, the president can pardon people. But he can't pardon people in exchange for, you know, not testifying against him. Uh, he can, you know, fire people, but he can't fire people to stop, in a, you know, something into his subordinates. Uh, so th- if, if you're on the harder edge of the spectrum, as the attorney general right now is, Bill Barr, uh, then the president can basically do a lot of things that the average American might not be comfortable with. Uh, and if you're more towards the mainstream, then you see a lot of the stuff Trump's been doing, and you think, well, you know, he's the president, but there are limits. And if you're a member of Congress, you say, wait a minute, we are, <coughs> pardon me, if you're a member of Congress, Republican or Democrat, it seems to me, and really looking at the you say, we are an equal branch of government. Right. And we have our responsibilities and our duties and our uh, powers as well. Right. And the, and the president cannot just totally ignore mm-hmm. us as an equal branch of government. Right. And one of the things he's done, you know, it, it, presidents in Congress clash all the time on well, oversight. Well, this is as old as the Constitution. Absolutely. And, and it's this designed debate. to uh, accommodate that. What Trump has done that is really sort of unprecedented is just saying we're not going to cooperate at all. We're not going to cooperate with any of these things. We'll give you things that you don't even want or need that you can get elsewhere. And that'll be sort of our, our fig leaf here. But we're not going to give you tax returns. We're not going to give you witnesses. We're not going to give you anything. We might give you Mueller. Barr says that, you know, it's up to, to Bob if he wants to testify. Um, but the the stonewalling, and Trump, Trump said this himself, he, you know, he, he he's really bad at hiding this sort of thing. Oh, no, uh, right. Just went out there and told reporters, like, yeah, we're not going to cooperate with anything on this. And that's where we sort of get into to sort of uncharted territory. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, are we going to hear from Robert Mueller? 
Uh, that's certainly what the House Judiciary Committee is trying to do. I know. Uh, their plan was to get they him stop in by Mueller the end of the month. Testifying? Uh, he's, he's still a Justice Department employee, correct? I believe he's still technically a Justice Department employee, yes. But, I, I, you know, if he leaves the Justice Department, there's relatively little they can do short of, you know, a lawsuit uh, to stop him from testifying. Uh, but no, the, the Judiciary Committee says the negotiations are ongoing. We don't really know exactly what that means. Um, but if, if there's some sort of friction with the Justice Department about that, then, then we should be hearing about it soon. Uh, Don McGahn, of course, is another witness who's out there right now. And that's, I think, where the, the administration is going to put up a bit more of a fight. Um, uh, just a, a little anecdote. Uh, I had uh, at a dinner last night. I was seated alongside of a woman. I want to be careful not to reveal her name or position. Uh, but she's the president of a very powerful uh, organization, uh, and she went in um, the first week of the told me she went in the first week of the Trump administration uh, to meet with Don McGahn uh, over some legal issues. And Don McGahn's response was, she laid out their case, and McGahn's response was, "I agree with you 100 percent, but we're not going to do that um, because Donald Trump." won't like that <laughs> yeah know, it was just flat out right it's it's uh, 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 so I, I guess he's been a but as it came out right mm-hmm. he was not willing to go along with a lot of what donald trump wanted him to do in ways that actually helped trump uh yeah. you know if he had actually gone through and fired Mueller, uh trump would be already going through impeachment hearings mm-hmm. uh so you know trump is probably not very happy that that McGahn told uh, told the special counsel all this stuff, but he also owes him one. But having told the special counsel all of this, you know, what's their, you know, why not just repeat it all to in front of a congressional committee? I mean, that's that's the point that Congress is going to make if this ends up in a court battle. Look, you know, the president has they've suggested that they could claim, uh, claim executive privilege on this stuff. But this, yeah, the cat's the already out is, the bag, right? right? You can't claim executive privilege, not only if the cat's already out the bag, but also if you waived it so that this guy could talk to Mueller in the first place. Uh, that opens up, you know, the door for Congress to come in and, and ask questions they might not be able to otherwise. Uh, now, whether or not they're going to f- put up a strong fight on that, whether or not they're going to realize it's sort of perfunctory, that remains to be seen. Right. Um, the other player here, of course, and 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 will will um, be very instrumental in, in reaching the decision on Mueller and on McGahn is Attorney General William Barr. Right. Right. I mean, he he is the he's turned out to be the flunky that. Donald Trump was hoping Jeff Sessions would be. I mean, I think even right? in a way that a lot of like you know Barr's critics and people he w- who were concerned about him exceeded even that. Um, I certain I think certainly people expected that his sort of extreme views on presidential power would mesh well with Trump's you know uh, whims and desires. But the degree to which he's gone out there to protect the president is is really startling. I mean, especially you know Jeff Sessions, whom you know many people on the left certainly had no no love for, looks. Like Elliot Richardson, almost by comparison. Right. No, no, no. He looks better. I mean, only Bill Barr could make Jeff Sessions look good. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I mean, for example, Bill Barr would not have recused himself. No, right? absolutely not. Right. No. Yeah. And Bill Barr, uh, if you go back, and I, I think some of us have lost track of this, that on in the George H. W. Bush administration, when he was Attorney General, this unitary executive again was his. Mission, right? Mm-hmm. That's he's always been on, and so I think he sees to come, and he pushed that under under Bush, mm-hmm. the, the Iraq War and Iran Contra, 
And now he saw his chance with Donald Trump to come back and complete the mission. Right? Mm-hmm. And especially with Iran-Contra, you know, he played a role in the, the you know, advising President Bush on the pardons that helped end some of that uh, back in 1991 uh, when, you know, the president was saying, oh, well, this investigation has gone on for years and years and people don't care anymore. It's time to just put this to bed. He was one of the figures who was advising the president to do that. And speaking of pardons, so last week we had two presidential pardons, right, Conrad mm-hmm. Black and Pat Nolan. Right. Um, both purely political appoint- political pardons. Well, right? it, it, that, certainly the Nolan pardon was framed in that way, although Nolan has, <laughs> to be fair, done a great deal of work for criminal justice reform uh, over the past uh, decade or so. He's been one of the key voices on the right, especially at the state level, in getting red states to do that. But Conrad Black uh, is, is an example of exactly what people feared. Uh, this is a man who, who wrote a very nice book about Trump, uh, said very nice things about Trump, and now received a, a pardon from the President of the United States. Um, you know, the pardon has always been sort of a controversial power, as you would expect, um, but Trump has really taken that to new heights. And it was reported now, it's reported now, that the White House and Donald Trump, are it's considering pardons for certain war criminals? Right. It's it's one thing if, if Trump just pardons cronies and flunkies. Um, certainly... Presidents before him have done that as well. Uh, this this is if we remember Bill Clinton. Oh and, yeah, uh, Mark Rich and Mark everything. Rich, right. Yeah. Uh, this is even more troubling. Uh, what what the president is doing is sending a signal, uh, an unambiguous, clear signal that if you are accused of committing war crimes, or if you actually do commit war crimes, or or, or whatever you do on the battlefield overseas while the U.S. is engaged in these wars, uh, you'll have somebody in your corner, the president of the United States. If you and your family members go on Fox and Friends a few times and really talk up your story and talk up how great you are, because the president simply does not care. We know this from the campaign that he does not care about civilian casualties overseas, that he does not care about uh, American soldiers misusing their their power. Uh, And he's putting that into practice. And that sends a horrifying signal, not only to troops overseas, but also to America's enemies. And that really puts them in harm's way if they're ever captured, uh, that, that... other powers will not treat them uh, well. Matt Ford is with us from New Republic, newrepublic.com. Um, so Justin Amash from Michigan comes out of his weekend, the first Republican mm-hmm. uh, in the House to say that uh, he read the report and the, he thinks the report is very clear that the president is guilty of uh, his, his actions met the threshold of impeachment. Does that increase the likelihood that there will be impeachment hearings in the House? I think it does, and I think it will for, really? for you one— Really? You think it does? I think it does for one reason. It's because it really provides a sharp contrast with how a lot of Democrats have treated this. Uh, one of the most—I mean, uh, the first thing a lot of people noticed when, when Amash came out and said this was, wow, he's the only Republican saying this. The other side of that coin is that he's further along than many Democrats have been. Uh, and, and not necessarily, you know, the people like, like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, like Rashida Tlaib, some of the younger— uh, voices in the party, people like Nancy Pelosi have also been sort of slow walking this impeachment talk. Uh, and so for a Republican lawmaker to come out and say, yeah, we should look into this, even if it's a mash who has certainly uh, stuck by his ideological principles throughout the administration, um, it really raises qu- uncomfortable questions for House Democrats as to, okay, if, if there's a Republican lawmaker saying this, why aren't you? Well, why it may be is um, uh, a reality check, right? Mm-hmm. In that the reality is there are not enough votes in the Senate, and there will never be. 
That's right. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the two lines of thinking there, which is one, that you don't f- start this if you can't finish it. And I think that was the lesson that a lot of people took from the Clinton impeachment, where the House went all in, very eager to condemn and castigate the president, and then they looked like fools and it when the Senate didn't, didn't help convict. the Republican Party. Right? And, and they, I think they lost but seats because of it. Even there, in the Clinton impeachment, there was a real trial, and there was a, there was a chance right. in the Senate that Clinton might have been convicted. Right. With this Senate and this president, there is no chance. Right. And the other side of that coin is— these, even Mitt Romney yesterday, right, saying mm-hmm. that admiring Justin Amash, he's courageous, and 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 Romney said his own reading of the report, he was disgusted with the president's behavior, but he made it clear he's not ready to vote to convict. Right, and, and the other he's not. Who who among the Republicans over there? Not one of them with any backbone. I think the expectation is there to put a lot of them in a tricky spot, and so for some people who also look at this, they say, well, look, the House can do its duty. That's its job. Its job is to, you know, present the articles, make the, you know, act like the grand jury in this scenario. Uh, that's their constitutional responsibility. What the Senate does is entirely up to the Senate. And if you can force some Republican senators to, you know, either face basically the, the black letter text of the Mueller report or satisfy the president's whims going into an election year, uh, that could be a tricky calculus for him or it could not be. <coughs> well, for that to happen... Wouldn't there have to be um, other Republican House members follow Justin Amash? Uh, for the vote in, in the House, you would only need – see, this is the, the fun, uh, fun I, part I mean of for the, I, I just mean for the, the even for – the, for the movement toward hearings, impeachment hearings, right, to get more – get underway, get some momentum there. Uh, Amash himself, I don't think, can trigger that movement. No, I, I don't think so, especially if the Democrats themselves aren't unified on it. If the Democrats want to do it, they can do it. I mean, if I, I, I did hear uh, one rep- uh, Democratic member of Congress yesterday said, well, Nancy Pelosi said it had to be bi- par- bipartisan for us to move. <laughs> well, so now it's bipartisan. Yeah, that's what we've learned from all these years of them sticking one name on a bill and suddenly it's you know from both parties. Right. So one, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay this. I think it's huge what Amash did, right? Mm-hmm. But one is not enough, I think, to start the avalanche, right? Right. If you get half a dozen Then you, you know, might be somewhere. Then you're then you're talking, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, then I think maybe some senators might start rethinking it too. Right. Yeah. And especially if if it's something that seems to really resonate with the public. You know, if if Mosh does this and he faces no sort of blowback electorally from it, uh that places other members who might be in a less, you know, right more precarious position. Uh, to make that leap. Well, uh, Amash has already talked about uh, may have a primary challenge. I, I think he could almost <laughs> certainly expect one. It would be really surprising if the president didn't find anybody <laughs> to run against him. Yeah. <laughs> He'll send Steve Bannon out there to run. Yeah. I, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, all these, as you point out, all these things that we're talking about, the starting with the emergency declaration, uh, the tax returns, uh, what, you know, maybe executive privilege, Don McGahn testifying or not testifying, releasing documents, releasing the whole unredacted report. There's so many of these things that are look like could be headed to the courts, and some of them eventually to the Supreme Court. Yeah. 
Um, what what can we expect from the Roberts Court? You've been taking a look at who. What is the Roberts Court? Who is the Roberts Court? The Roberts Court is is John Roberts and whichever four justices happen to agree with him at the time. Uh, and because the court is so ideologically divided between you know the four Democratic appointees and the four Republican appointees, uh, that gives Roberts a tremendous amount of power here to decide the outcome of major cases. We know uh, that he's certainly somebody who who like believes in like Barr uh, believes certainly in a, a more powerful view of the presidency than a lot of other folks. Uh, we know that from the travel ban case where he accepted the president's sweeping, uh, obviously pretextual excuse for the Muslim ban. Uh, but we also know that he's not necessarily somebody who is who is chums with Trump. He's somebody who fought with him publicly in something that's almost unprecedented. Uh, just a few months ago about whether or not there are Obama judges and Trump judges. And the AP calls up the chief justice, and the chief justice is like, yeah, this is nonsense. And he also um, voted against the repeal of Obama. I mean, voted to um, protect Obama or support Obamacare. Right. And so yeah. the, the comforting words Again, that, going against Trump. Yeah, that a lot of people have been telling themselves as well, if John Roberts can save the Affordable Care Act, he can save the republic. Um, but I think that really, really remains to be seen. With some of these, he might be willing to, to you know, equivocate and, and, and give uh, Democrats some things they want. But with others, uh, it might be a harder thing. Last week, uh, again, trying to read the tea leaves of the Supreme Court. It's kind of difficult with this court. But there was a 5-4 decision. However, it was not John Roberts that sided with the four progressives. It was, of all people, Brett Kavanaugh yeah. on the Apple case. Sometimes, sometimes they surprise you. Uh, you know, the, that the, sure did. When, when it's when they're outside <laughs> of some of these like major ideological cases, they do vary some ways. I, I mean, Neil Gorsuch, for example, uh, is somebody who has worked very closely with Sonia Sotomayor on sort of Fourth Amendment and Sixth Amendment issues. Uh, you know, he also is somebody who has a lot more experience with with uh, Indian cases. Uh, than a lot of other Ameri- a lot of other judges do because he was in the Tenth Circuit, and so he's somebody who tends to favor tribes more than a lot of the other conservative judges. Uh, you know, that's it's going to be fun to watch how people get surprised every once in a while uh, when when they do something like this. And especially the thing that was really surprising with this one was that this was not in some minor case. This was in that major Apple lawsuit, which could have you know significant ramifications for the company. Right. Uh, do you believe that Roe v. Wade is in uh, at risk today? Yes. I would just vary how much we say at risk um, because they have they can do a few things. Um, one thing that Roberts could do is he could simply uh, leave intact the basic framework and the, 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 the Casey framework of what is an undue burden. And he could simply say that, well, this is not an undue burden, even if it's some, you know, very severe restriction that closes down all the clinics. We know he did that, and he voted to do that two years ago in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, uh, the last major abortion case to come through the court. So he could leave Roe theoretically intact, and maybe intact in basically the blue states and some purple states, uh, but also create an environment where in the red states it just does not exist. Um, so that's that's the, the best case scenario. The, the worst case scenario but, is that he simply— I, I don't understand that. Wouldn't their decision have to, from the Supreme Court, apply equally to all 50 states? Well, with something like this, it would depend on what the local environment for regulations is. One of the things that we saw in, in Whole Woman's Health was that the state passed uh, what are sort of admitting privileges regulations about where physicians have to be uh, registered. They, they they said that, you know, if you're in a 30-mile radius of a hospital, 
then you can perform an abortion at the clinic, which you know freezes out a lot of rural clinics. Uh, you know, they, we've seen sort of other health <coughs> so and safety it allow codes. states to uh, adopt some of their own restrictions. Right. And so in a place like California or New York, there's no chance that the legislatures there would pass something designed to close down clinics. Right. But if you're in Texas or Louisiana or Mississippi, they will absolutely do that. Right. But this is all headed to the, I mean, all these, all these state actions and Alabama particularly, mm-hmm. all headed to the court for a showdown probably within the next year. Yeah, and that's the fun part, is that this is going to happen in an election year. Yeah. Um, not sure it's the fun part, but well, it's certainly going to... Yeah, yeah, got it. <laughs> uh, Matt Ford, with us from the New Republic. Uh, your great friend, great guest. Thanks so much for coming Thanks in Thanks for again. having me. Uh, NewRepublic.com. When we come back, Steve Shepard from Politico. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And now even Donald Trump says Alabama went too far. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Maybe they're starting to feel the political heat. What do you say, folks? Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. It is uh, Monday, May 20. And this is The Bill Press Show. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us with lots to talk about. That's what we do every day, at least for the next couple of weeks, every day. Uh, Bring you up to date, romp through the news headlines of the day, uh, and give you uh, our best analysis uh, from uh, right here, me, uh, plus our guest, and then get your comments as well on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. And we'll take a look at the news, whether it's coming from... Washington, D.C., around the country, or around the globe, joining you on radio, on television, and online. Big stories of the day, of course. Justin Amash from Michigan, Republican Congress becoming congressman, becoming the very first Republican member of Congress to say, I read the Mueller report, and it proves conclusively that Donald Trump committed impeachable acts and should be impeached. Uh, So far, no other Republicans have joined him, but we can only hope that some of them will uh, uh, be inspired by his courage to read the report and come to a similar conclusion. Again, we'll tell you what's going on. You tell us what it means to you. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. And we'll we'll dive right in, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, Bill, it's commencement season, right? Oh, my God. Graduation season. George Washington University had its big uh, commencement on the Washington Mall yesterday. I was driving by, saw lots of people walking around, and 
their robes and everything. Well, yeah. how about this? Let's go to Morehouse College, where they had their graduation oh boy. ceremonies yes. over the weekend. And the commencement speaker was Robert F. Smith. He is a self-made billionaire. He's the CEO and chairman of Vista Equity Partners. Uh, they are a uh, private equity group that invests in software companies. Well, he gave the commencement address, and he gave a lot of good words of inspiration. He also said that uh, he was going to uh, give a gift of $1.5 million to the school to be used for scholarship and development of uh, uh, new facilities. And then at the end of his address, he said, I am also going to pay off all of your student debt. Everybody in the graduating class will have their student debt paid off by Robert F. Smith. Now, I didn't really think about how much that would possibly cost. Do you know how much it's going to be? No. I... $40 million. Whoa. $40 million is what he is going to pay to uh, get rid of all of their uh, student loans. I mean, that is so great. But, you know, uh, think about it, though. If that one graduating class at Morehouse, which is hardly one of the biggest colleges in the country, right? Sure, right. If their combined student debt was $40 million, what does that say about, oh, God. I mean, it's a terrible indictment of the for-profit uh, university college. But it's good, just yikes. Good for him. Yeah. You know, that, and uh, it came as a big surprise at the end of the, of the talk. And, boy, what a graduation present. Huh? Yeah, people were very, very excited about it. Uh, okay, so over in England, they have this new great tradition that I love that when politicians that they don't agree with usually these far right-wing politicians are speaking anywhere close to them they just throw a milkshake at them and they douse them oh, in milkshakes yeah it's happened like four times in the last month so not, not uh, nigel farage remember this guy the guy that led the whole he's a nutcase he's a total, total nutcase he's a t total trumper well the police actually ordered a mcdonald's yes. in scotland <laughs> to stop selling milkshakes <laughs> because they were worried that people would use the, buy them to throw at the politicians. <laughs> I think this is so funny. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, right. I love it. Can they still sell rotten tomatoes? This is the Bill Press Show. He's a brave man. Justin Amash becomes the first Republican member of the House of Representatives to say Donald Trump committed impeachable acts as outlined in the Mueller report, and he should be impeached. Okay, who's the next Republican to go to stand up and join him? If any Republican, Senator, or member of the House of Representatives, don't hold your breath. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It's a Monday, Monday, May 20. Here we are. Great to see you today. Hope you had a great weekend and are ready to dive into the uh, new busy week here. Uh, no such thing as a <laughs> quiet news day in the, in the era of Donald Trump. And we certainly got lots to talk about today here on this Monday, starting with uh, the big surprise statement put out a series of tweets, that's the way people communicate these days, by Representative Justin Amash of Michigan, uh, that he had concluded after reading the entire Mueller report that Donald Trump is guilty of impeachable acts and should be impeached. 
Um, and with that and all the other news of the day, we join you online, on the radio, and on television. <clears throat> on television, on Free Speech TV, America's only full-time 24-7 progressive cable network. On the radio in the great WCPT out in Chicago. Hello, hello, Chicago. And uh, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, which, of course, is where you find our podcast. And let's remind you again, we're making a big transition here and abandoning the daily two-hour grind through the news of the day uh, in and moving to a series of podcasts starting the first week of June. And so in order to that we can count on you and we want you to follow us into the new format, make sure you're already signed up on for our podcast at, uh, at uh, on go to Bill, BillPressShow.com and sign up for the podcast. And make sure you're following us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Again, because we don't want to lose you. Uh, I've heard from so many of you saying, oh, no, 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 we're not going away. We're just going to be a new format and uh, we definitely want you there. So uh, sign up for the podcast. Follow us uh, on Twitter. Uh, Stephen Shepard from Politico will be joining us here very, very shortly uh, while, while we're uh, waiting for Stephen. Let's uh, take another look at um, uh, Justin Amash yesterday. Uh, it was over the weekend that he made his comments clear, saying um, two things, uh, of three things actually of note. Number one, that he had read the report. Uh, as he pointed out, most of his Republican colleagues did not, Justin Amash saying, in fact, quote, few members of Congress even read Mueller's report, Republican or Democrat. Their minds were already made up based on partisan affiliation alone, number one. Number two, Justin Amash says, I read the report, all 448 pages, and here's what I found out. He said, I found, I, I believe the report says that Donald Trump, quote, engaged in specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment, that clearly meet the threshold for impeachment. Well, what about the fact that Donald Trump says, or as Bill Barr says, hey, Robert Mueller said he didn't commit a crime. What about that? Justin Amash says, doesn't matter. That's not what it's all about. The issue is, he says, quote, quoting him again, impeachment, quote, simply requires a finding that an official has engaged in careless, abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. And clearly the Mueller report establishes that that Donald Trump did engage in careless, abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. Uh, and so Justin Amash says, let the impeachment hearings begin. First Republican member of Congress uh, to do so. Uh, that's the second thing he said. The third thing is he took a swipe at Attorney General William Barr, too, uh, and saying that Barr deliberately misled the American people, and the American Congress deliberately misrepresented what the report was all about in that four-page summary he provided to Congress and in the news conference he gave the morning the report was released. Uh, Justin Amash says Bill Barr was using sleight of hand 
qualifications or logical fallacies to make the report sound more positive about Donald Trump, to make the conclusions of the report seem more positive to Donald Trump than, in fact, they are. Um, and with that, Justin Amash, of course, he was ridiculed or condemned by Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and by Donald Trump himself, who called him a loser. He called him a loser. He called him a total lightweight uh, and said he was just, they, they were saying he was just trying to get his name out in the paper. He was just trying to get some publicity. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, for Donald Trump to accuse anybody else of doing things just to get some publicity, you must admit, is really, really rich. But but I think we have to admire uh, the courage and the independence, and it took a lot of courage from Justin Amash to make this statement uh, because it, it clearly means that he'll have a primary challenge. He knows that going in uh, when he runs for re-election next year. Um, and uh, to... to it took a lot of courage to stand alone uh, in a caucus of nothing but total ass-kissers and sycophants of Donald Trump, both in the House uh, and in the Senate. Will it change the math in the House in terms of um, support for impeachment? Not really. Democrats don't need any votes in the House. They need votes in the Senate. There are already enough votes in the House among Democrats to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, it's good to have one Republican. It'd be good to have 10 more Republicans. And then and, and, and if there were 10 Republicans instead of one, maybe Democrats might be more willing to move into impeachment hearings. So far, they haven't. Uh, but where they really need votes is in the Senate. Uh, one Republican, two Republican, three, four, five Republican senators would clearly make a difference because one thing that's been holding Democrats back in the House is not to move toward impeachment hearings because the reality is there's no chance in hell that they could get a conviction vote in the Senate as as of today. Not one single Republican in the Senate has been willing to say they would vote to convict Donald Trump if the House were to impeach. Not even Mitt Romney, who was on um, CNN's State of the Union yesterday, uh, and Mitt Romney saying, okay, the question was, are would you vote today? Are you ready to vote today to, if it comes over to the, from the House to the Senate, if the House votes to impeach, comes to the Senate, would you vote to convict Mitt Romney? I have not made uh, any decision on that front, so we'll, we'll wait. This is way too early for that. Oh, way too early for that. He does say, however, that even though he doesn't agree with him, he admires uh, the courage of Justin Amash. My own view is that uh, Justin Amash has reached a different conclusion than I have. Uh, I respect him. I think it's a courageous statement. But I, I believe that to make a case for obstruction of justice, uh, you just don't have the elements that are uh, evidenced in this uh, document. Uh, yeah, sadly. Uh, one would think, i got to tell you, other than Mitt Romney, I don't know anybody in the Senate today that you could even think there might be a prayer. I, I hate to say Susan Collins because we always count on Susan Collins and then she lets us down. Uh, it's certainly not going to be Lindsey Graham, not be John Cornyn, not Mitch McConnell, you know, not, um, 
think about it before because it's there. I, I was right? trying to think. So, like, Susan uh, Collins is the one who gets pointed to as like an independent Republican, but I think that myth we can throw. See, that's just down all the time. Yeah, we can throw that myth out the window. Not Ben, ben Paul. Ben, ben Paul. Sass. Huh? Ben, ben Sass. This guy, Ben Sass. Maybe Ben Sass. But maybe. like, but he's voted for all of these uh, appointments. He's voted for all the judges. He voted for Kavanaugh. He's he's like upheld Trump's sort of imperial type of presidency. Like, he's not going to be the one. None, no. of them, none of them will. No, no, no. And then Rand Paul, right? I mean, Rand Paul, yeah. he, every once in a while, he makes a little noise by by uh, you know, saying something critical about Donald Trump, and then he goes and plays golf with him. Or, right. or, or I'm not sure he's that the Lindsey Graham's the golfer. I'm not sure Rand Paul is, but he goes down to the White House and then comes back and votes for everything that Donald Trump wants. So I don't, I don't, I don't see... Anybody. And of all of them, Mitt Romney has been the most critical of all. Not as critical as when he was uh, Donald Trump was a candidate, but uh, showing some independence, but with, with Romney not there. But anyway, don't want I, I don't want to put down the significance of what Justin Amash has done, because, again, being the first Republican, um, this does mean there are, even if it's only one, bipartisan voices saying that Donald Trump should be impeached. And he could very well influence other Republicans to, to, to read the report themselves and maybe come to the same conclusion. And by having come forward, he really calls the lie. He really exposes the lie that we've heard from all re other Republicans so far, uh, starting with Donald Trump, that this the Mueller report concludes no collusion and no obstruction. It does not. It shows and shows evidence, and that's what Justin Amash found when he read it, of multiple, multiple, multiple examples of collusion, just no criminal conduct, and multiple attempts to obstruct justice, again, which Robert Mueller did not decide was criminal or not because he said his hands were tied by a Department of Justice ruling. Um, Look, so, it, it's it's... It's a big deal. It's not a like yeah, a, you know, huge game changer yet. It could be could be a moment that we point to and say, okay, Republicans, they're starting to realize that they will continue to support Donald Trump at their own peril. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll just have to see. And there is one parallel in history, and I mentioned earlier, and that is back within the in the Nixon days. Well, uh, when Congress was starting to, it was bubbling up whether Nixon had committed impeachable offenses. Um, there was one Republican member of Congress, one, who came forward to say, yes, this president should be impeached. He was Pete McCloskey, uh, Congressman Pete McCloskey from uh, San Mateo County, California. Uh, and by that one Republican coming forward, it ended up with four or five or six Republican senators going down to the White House and telling Richard Nixon, you better resign because if you don't, you're going to be impeached and you'll be convicted in the Senate and we cannot support you. So a uh, lot of buzz about the, uh, the, the announcement by uh, Justin Amash over the weekend, and we'll see whether any other um, Republican members of the House or Senate uh, decide to follow uh, his lead. Meanwhile, Lots of activity over the weekend by all the uh, 2020 Democratic candidates. They were out on the stump, and Joe Biden was uh, making 
yet another official announcement uh, up in uh, up in Philadelphia over the weekend. Uh, Stephen keeps people like Stephen Shepard from Politico very busy, particularly looking at uh, how the polls run after they uh, after their latest campaign announcements. Uh, and Steve Shepard, aforementioned, joins us in studio. Stephen, it's good to see you. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. All right. Have a good weekend. I did. I actually, you mentioned the polls. I spent the weekend uh, with all of America's pollsters up in Toronto for their annual uh, conference. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And why in Toronto? They move it around every year. I don't know why they they decided to hold it north of the border this time, but uh, it was a great time. Uh, A lot of folks who are doing a lot of innovation these days, um, trying new ways to reach people because it's harder to get people to talk on the phone. Well, that's, you know, I hear that conversation all the time, right? How, how trustworthy are these, are these polls? Because if you have call waiting, uh, not call waiting, but call ID, caller mm-hmm. ID. Yeah, you don't pick up the phone. And you look and it says survey, you don't pick up the phone. No. Or if you don't know who's calling, you don't pick up the phone, right? Uh, most people. And uh, and how many people still have landlines, right? So right. So now they're able to call cell phones, but it's so expensive. And only six percent of of their calls uh, result in a completed interview these days. Six um, percent. So you're the people who are willing to participate in some ways may not reflect the overall population. That's the whole idea is to get a sample of people that reflect the population. Now, having said that, in 2018 the polls are pretty good. Um, the New York Times, you know, spent a lot of money to conduct all of those polls in congressional districts all over the phone. Uh, most of them were pretty accurate. Um, the statewide polls were pretty good. In 2016, the national polls were, were decent. Uh, some of the state polls, particularly in the upper north, upper Midwest, rather, uh, were uh, found wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, there were a lot of challenges, and, and it was interesting to hear about all the different ways, um, largely involving getting people to complete surveys either over the Internet or over, like, text message. There's a lot of stuff going on. I, I was going to ask you, are the, so are most of them still conducted by phone? Most of the ones that you read about are still conducted by phone. That has been long been the gold standard, uh, particularly for news organizations when it comes to political polling. Yeah. Um, that is changing. And uh, it could be that this changing is the last election. Online? Yes. And it could be this is the last election where really that is uh, – the gold standard, or, or or maybe that ship has already sailed. It's going to be an interesting uh, next year and a half. Uh, for texting, how do they get people's phone numbers? So they're able to get phone numbers from voter files. Uh, when you register to vote, you leave a phone number. Sometimes people put their landline. Sometimes people put their cell phone. Um, they're able to take the numbers that they know are cell phone exchanges. Uh, and then they're, uh, they're, the law is a little murky as to whether or not they're allowed to text you. Um, and what they're allowed to do. And until that gets sorted out, you're seeing some folks try to invite people, hey, click on this link, or even in some cases, text back with an interviewer who's waiting to return your text to ask you whom you intend to vote for or whether you approve of the job President Trump is doing. All right. As of this moment, uh, how's, uh, what is Donald Trump's approval rating? How's, how are polls holding up for him? It's in the low to mid 40s. That's um, a little bit higher than I think the long term average is. Um, he's maybe up a point or two from from his uh, long term average, but it's still obviously a very perilous place to be. We saw that uh, new Fox News poll last week that also tested some head to head matchups with Democratic candidates. And he hovers right around 40 percent. Some of the better known Democrats um, like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders 
uh, uh, beat him in that. Some of the lesser known Democrats tie him because there's a lot more undecideds because voters don't necessarily know Pete Buttigieg or, or Kamala Harris as well as they know Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. This is, uh, uh, like I said, it's a little bit better for President Trump than he's been, but it is still a very, very perilous he's place. He's never be. been above 50, has he? No. And it's always been in that mid to low to mid 40s. Yeah, occasionally roughly. dipping I mean, be- dipping yeah. below 40, uh, topping out at 45, 46, but, but really having a hard time getting over that hump. Now, there are 24, by my count, Democratic candidates. Um, I wouldn't expect you to remember uh, where each one of them stands in the polls, but to the extent that you remember sort of the top runners, uh, how does it break down now? Is Joe Biden still out in front? Joe Biden is still out in front, and, and I would argue that he's kind of in a, a tier unto himself. Um, he is up between 30 and 40 percent, depending on the poll that you look at, uh, of of share of the Democratic electorate. Oh, I, yeah. Um, he's very popular, generally speaking. Only uh, about 10 percent of Democratic voters say they have an unfavorable opinion of him. Only about... 30 to 40 percent of all voters say they have an unfavorable opinion of him. Now he's just re-entering the political arena after all this time outside it, um, <laughs> both both after serving as vice president. And then also, you know, his last year or two as vice president, he became a lot more popular. You know, unfortunately, the tragedy involving um, his mm-hmm. son, the, mm-hmm. the attorney general of Delaware, Bo Biden, uh, that the, his approval rate and then he announced he wasn't going to run for president. Uh, his approval ratings and favorability ratings went up. Uh, when that happened and have stayed there. But now that he's re-entering politics, we'll have to see what happens to that. Bernie Sanders is second. He's generally popular. He's popular among Democrats. He's more popular than unpopular among all voters. Um, but when it, when you look at uh, whom Democrats say they want to be their candidate to face uh, President Trump, he's definitely uh, only getting about half the amount of support that Joe Biden is getting at this point. Okay. And the other... If you had a first, a, a top tier, yeah. right, of candidates, if it certainly would be Bernie and and Joe Biden, right, and they're probably and then, separate tiers. Uh, Biden really? above, think, yeah. I, I think. It's, you think it's, you said you, it's yeah, his, his and then own tier, huh? And then right. that the, that next tier of kind of contenders, uh, I put I put Elizabeth Warren in that list. I put Kamala Harris. I put Pete Buttigieg. Um, fighting to stay in this conversation right now are Beto O'Rourke and Cory Booker. Uh, right now, they're a little bit below um, those other three that I mentioned, who are kind of jockeying for third place at this point. Um, but they're still in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, is Beto O'Rourke sort of did Pete Buttigieg kind of knock Beto O'Rourke off his perch? Is that I, I, I think you can see a the rise for Buttigieg um, into that tier with Warren and Harris. Um, it, it seems like it did come at the expense of O'Rourke. Uh, it, it, the timing worked out, too, because o- O'Rourke had had his announcement ba- uh, bump, um, mm-hmm. and then Buttigieg's rise came in the weeks following that, and you could see O'Rourke kind of top out and start to tick down closer to, say, 5% than 10%. Um, some polls even have him at 3 or 4% at this point, uh, and, and those things seem to have uh, coincided with one another. Right. But once you get beyond Booker and Beto O'Rourke... Um, there are people there that you haven't mentioned: Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, Julian Castro, and then uh, who may be in it here by themselves, and then a lot of others yeah. that, that most people have never heard Jay of: Jay Inslee, John Hook, and Looper. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Any chance of them? Any of them breaking through? 
Sure. There's a long way to go, Bill. And, <laughs> and you know what? We're going to have um, <coughs> next month and what, five weeks, uh, those first debates. Um, and, right. and those people that you mentioned, uh, Amy Klobuchar, um, probably Kirsten Gillibrand, they'll be there. They'll have their opportunity. Um, they, they have a chance to have a, a moment in the sun. Now, the, the one thing that, that hurts is the field is so large uh, that it might make that a little bit more difficult to stand out. Um, but there's certainly uh, the opportunity exists. The question is, is the field so large that it doesn't really give that, that, that no one's able to seize that opportunity? And really, it's the top two candidates or top three candidates who end up dominating all the news coverage out of those debates um, in June and July. And then we never see um, someone from outside, say, the top three or top five uh, currently get into the conversation. You're right. Uh, I'm trying to remember whether the debate, it, it's got to be more longer than an hour, right? It'll be... It'll be... So it'll each be two hours. Two hours, two nights in a row. Correct. Okay. 9 to 11 Eastern Time, airing on... The first one on NBC, MSNBC, and I think Telemundo. Yeah. Um, so and, you'll get broadcast and cable audiences. Um, it'll be two hours each. There'll, there'll probably be nine or ten people in each panel. Right. They're going to be a total of 20, so 10 people. A maximum of 20. Maximum, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and 10 people each night with two hours. So uh, uh, Probably I, with commercials, because remember, <laughs> this is not, these are not the general election debates, which are like a public trust. This is a, it's a TV show. Right, right. But so we'll, I mean, not everybody's going to have that much time, but we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to see them, right, uh, confront the issues. Uh, confront each other and um, and see how they do on their feet, right? I mean, I think the first debate it could be the first culling of the of the, the meaning. A couple of people could drop out after the first debate. I I, I certainly Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure about the first debate, but certainly because the rules for qualifying for the second debate are the same as qualifying for the first debate. They're yeah. only a month apart. I do think after that second debate at the end of July, right. there are no debates in August. Yeah. Um, so we don't come back until after Labor Day. Uh, I think if you have it, and, and it, it's rumored, though the DNC has not announced what they're going to do yet, it's rumored that they are going to basically raise the qualification bar uh -huh, for after the, the second debate. So I think that is, to me, I'm looking at August as the, the, the second debate, the last night is July 31st. I think August is, is the culling of the herd, um, perhaps potentially significantly. We'll have to see. Right. Um, so Joe Biden uh, was in Philadelphia uh, on Saturday. This was his uh, yet. Everybody's had multiple launches, it seems, right? You know, multiple events and everything. Yes. Uh, because he had uh, the video come out, and then he had the union rally, rally at the union hall, and then Saturday, and he he answered for himself the question, "Why am I running?" He says there are three reasons. The first is to restore the soul of the nation, the essence of who we are. I mean it. And the second is to rebuild the backbone of this nation. And the third, to unite this nation. One America. One America. So um, it's funny. I ran into our good friend Bob Cusack from The Hill at MSNBC yesterday, and, and we were talking about this, and Bob said, you know, he really surprised me. I thought, and I, I think a lot of people feel this way, about Joe Biden that he had peaked before he announced, and once he announced, he would just start sliding down in the polls. How do you uh, explain the fact that just the opposite has happened? I, I would point to a couple of things. Um, I, I, I do think maybe we have 
misread uh, the extent to which um, Democratic voters want more than anything else to defeat President Trump <laughs> in 2020. And uh, to have someone come in who does run stronger than the other candidates in the in the polls right now, now has way more name ID than anybody else other than Bernie Sanders uh, in this field, uh, which which explains a lot of it, um, running against a, a currently unpopular president. Um, you know, I, I think they see those cues. Uh, the other thing I'd point to so is that, just to elaborate yeah. on that mm-hmm. a little bit. In other words, um, I'd love to see somebody who's you know as far left as Bernie, right? <laughs> or I'd love to see somebody who would be the first African American woman president. Right. Or I'd love to see a gay president, right? There are a lot of things. Or I'd love to see somebody who's as far as you could get out there on climate change, like a Jay Inslee, right? Mm-hmm. But most of all, I want to beat Donald Trump. Well, and is and that what you're saying? Right. Sorry. It's it's sort of the maybe for for people who either um, have uh, want uh, uh, more liberal policies or who uh, want a candidate where their identity is history making. Say the first woman president, the first gay president. Um, I, I think a lot of them are willing to settle for. They view half a loaf as 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 really appealing, given the alternative. Um, and so I, I think that uh, I, to me that that's driven it. The other thing is I think the Biden campaign has run pretty smoothly so far, especially when compared with the pre-announcement um, kind of Sturm und Drang about uh, his handsiness or mm-hmm. uh, some yeah. of his past votes. Uh, those were issues that were litigated largely before he entered the race and have faded a little bit. Um, Certainly they may have their moments, especially when he's up on the stage with eight or nine other Democratic candidates, uh, lineups to be determined. Um, But I I think those issues may come to the fore again. But for now, his campaign has been able to run uh, uh, an effort that, that it feels a little bit like a Rose Garden strategy. He did have this other launch event, but that's because he hadn't really had another big public speech. He, he's done these uh, events in indoors. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the first time that it really was open to lo- a large group of people. How, to what extent is he uh, benefiting from uh, his association with Barack Obama? I, I think to a great degree. And I and I think you hear him talk about that a lot. Uh, that is one of the, uh, that is I think an ace in the hole for him. Um, you know, it, I'm not. I don't know that over the next uh, year or so, however long it takes for Democrats to settle on a nominee, um, that that continues to be as compelling an argument, um, especially when Democratic voters get to see some of the other candidates and maybe get as excited about them as they were about Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Um, and and maybe also in hindsight, now that they look at the current occupant of the White House, for a lot of Democratic voters, that that nostalgia is probably pretty powerful. Um, but it remains to be seen that once they get to see the promise of other candidates, if that still holds true for them. Right. And I have heard uh, seen comments from several leading African American uh, elected officials that you know, look, Joe was there for yeah. our first African American president for eight years, totally Being supportive. Vice, yeah. I mean that that that's a he gets a lot of credit for that. Being vice president is is not necessarily the easiest job um, because you are essentially full-time number two. You have to subjugate yourself uh, to the president. And because he also d- ended up not running in 2016, the circumstances being what they were, 
Um, I, I think that makes him an even more loyal soldier. You know, we see other vice pre- president vice president relationships degrade over time. Uh, it certainly happened with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney over eight years. Before that, Al Gore ran as far away from Bill Clinton as possible in the 2000 right presidential yeah. election, um, even though uh, Clinton's right. approval ratings were high, his favorability ratings were not high. People didn't people liked the job he was doing more than they yeah. liked him. And Al Gore took that as a cue, like, I need to kind of distance myself. Uh, both of those relationships degraded over time. That didn't happen with Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And, and I, I, that's kind of a historical anomaly. Right. Um, so the other primary within a primary it, that it seems to me is for who is going to have the uh, the the left lane in the primary, and that primary would be between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I think right. Um, Bernie's got a big head start on there, right? Can Elizabeth Warren overtake him? I think she can. Um, I think. She's had a good month, month and a half uh, in the race. Um, I think you've seen her poll numbers tick up some. Uh, in a lot of the polls now, she is in third place, uh, running you know kind of neck and neck um, with Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, but but really holding her own there. Um, Bernie she's Sanders been uh, yeah. put out more bold ideas and proposals than anybody else. I think and and really. Um, is is delivering a new message. Bernie Sanders is is largely running on the same message he ran on uh, in 2015 and 2016, and Elizabeth Warren is delivering a new message to a national audience, um, and it is starting to gain traction. Uh, obviously, she still has a ways to go um, to surpass Bernie Sanders. One of the interesting things to me is whether, and there's a 50% chance of this uh, either way, whether or not they will be on the stage together in the first debate. Yeah, um, right. That's a random drawing. Uh, it's it's fifty fifty. Um, I think that in some ways they would might benefit from being separated. Both of them might benefit from that. Um, but you know, we're just gonna have to see. Uh, I don't know how they're gonna do it. Flip coins or pick names out of a hat. But we'll have to see how that drawing goes. Right. Um, and then we gotta let you go. But I, I have to ask you one because because you've been writing about this and I've been wondering about it too. What's the story? You just came from this big conference. What's the verdict on exit polls? Well, so I just I wrote a story about this this weekend uh, for Politico. Um, we now have essentially two exit polls: the traditional exit poll run by uh, the news networks ABC, CBS, CNN, NBC. Um, they largely interview people outside polling places. The Associated Press, along with Fox News, has launched its own kind of replacement for the exit poll. It's mostly conducted in the run-up to Election Day, but it is supposed to be just a, a really deep dive into who voted and why. Um, it's conducted a little bit more like a pre-election poll in the days leading up to the election. Uh, but it is very, very comprehensive. Both claim that they had a lot of success in 2018. But one of the things that was interesting to me is is these newsrooms, different newsrooms, the AP, Fox mm-hmm. on one side, and then the other news networks on the other side, are going to have two competing sets of data in the afternoon on Election Day 2020. Or in the afternoon of the Iowa caucus, well, not the afternoon of the Iowa caucuses, yeah. because those right. that that's a the, you get people on the way in. But in the afternoon of the New Hampshire primary, um, and they may have two different stories to tell. We've seen exit polls struggle uh, to do one of the two jobs, which is to guide news organizations as they guide viewers through the night. Uh, give them an idea of what they can expect to happen, what the night looks like, what what voters said they cared about, and and who kind of has the edge. 
And if they differ, then we could be looking at a night that's largely experienced very differently depending on what channel you're watching or what website you're reading or, or, or who you, whom you follow on, on Twitter. Yeah. So. Uh, and we've seen in the past where exit polls have really gotten the networks yeah. into some trouble, too. Hey, Steven, it's great to see you. Thanks no. so much for... Congra- I want to just congratulate you real quick on uh, a great run here. Um, I've had a great time coming on, and I, I appreciate you having me. You are one of our favorite guests, so it's great to <laughs> Thank see you, you again. No, seriously, you've done a great job for us. And uh, when we're, again, we're not going away. We're just going to a new podcast and format. Where we'll, all the best of luck, and if there's anything I can do to help, please You'll be know. part of it, for sure. Wonderful. All right, uh, Steve Shepard, Politico, politico.com, and Neil Zelizniewski from Roll Call coming up next. This is The Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, May 20, hello, everybody. Great to have you with us today. The Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital. And our studio right here on Capitol Hill, as we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers. Yes, the members, Teachers of America, doing the Lord's work in the classroom every day under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. Check out their website at AFT. Dot org. Join me in welcoming to the studio Niels Lesniewski, a good friend and a regular guest from Roll Call, senior writer at Roll Call. Hello, Niels. It's good to uh, see it's you. It's good to be back. We have uh, uh, a little poll. By the way, Peter, um, I just saw in Niels uh, here during the break, uh, Fox News reporting that New York City uh, is considering a new fine, a fine for people who text while walking. Think about that. I mean, I got to tell you, I, I understand text while driving should be you should get absolutely get in trouble for that. But text by walking, come Guilty. on. Guilty. Yeah, same. Guilty. Yeah. There's right. nothing wrong with texting while walking. Except you walk into people. I've done that. Uh, or you walk into buildings, or you walk into telephone poles. I've done that. Um, but I mean, so you can get a little distracted. Uh, you know what? I, I, crossing the street while texting is okay. more. I give you that. Yeah, that's kind of a little dangerous. So, anyhow, I wonder if this is part of Bill de Blasio's <laughs> 2020 platform. Right. <laughs> you wouldn't do that, Niels, would you? I'm probably guilty as charged <laughs> on that one. Yeah, I'm 100 percent right. guilty. Although I don't know how I don't know how anyone, uh, most people who are living, you know, rural Iowa and New Hampshire will understand what <laughs> right. Bill de Blasio is talking about if he makes this part of his platform. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. On a lot of issues. I'm not sure they'll know what he's talking about. What's about this poll here? Oh, I yeah. Vote. All right. So we're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show, where we just put up a poll about uh, Congressman Justin Amash. Mm. Do you think that Amash will influence other Republicans to take a stand on impeaching Trump, or will he stand alone? You have two options. He will inspire others, or he is on his own right now. Overwhelmingly, people think that he is on his own. 86% of you think that he is out there on his own. Uh, but it's early. It's early. So you can still go vote uh, on Twitter at BP Show. Well, Daniels, as someone who covers the Congress, let's ask you, um, first of all, um, does his coming forth for impeachment uh, change the math in the House? And will it... Um, sort of uh, maybe increase the appetite for Democrats to uh, undertake impeachment hearings? That, that, that's where the question is going to lie, and I think there's there's a couple of different ways it could go. You could see, I'm sure you will see some uh, of the more liberal or progressive members of the Democratic caucus 
arguing that it is now bipartisan. I've already heard it. I've already seen it. Of course, they're already saying. And so that. you know, it's the same way that it was. It's the same way that in the Senate, when Joe Manchin supports something that the Republicans are doing, it's suddenly bipartisan. It's not really bipartisan, but there is this one outlier. So they'll well, they'll make that argument. It is, but it's certainly the most narrow definition of bipartisan yes. as you could get. So so there's that. Uh, what I will be curious to see uh, is whether or not uh, typically party. You know this uh, as well as anybody, but typically party political committees, uh, campaign committees in the House and in the Senate support their incumbents if they are challenged in primaries. You know, for the Democrats, we see this issue in the House with with Dan Lipinski in Illinois, uh, for instance, uh, where, you know, this is not necessarily someone who the the uh, progressive base and the the uh, the pro-choice voters of the Democratic Party are necessarily happy. But but Sherry Bustos, who chairs the campaign committee, is fundraising for him because he's an incumbent and he is given to the party and so on and so forth. Right. So what do the Republicans do when someone is against Donald Trump? Do they just throw them off the boat or do they fundraise for them and treat them like an incumbent? Eat their own is what they do. I will do. I, I'd be willing to bet. Um, so there's a Republican member of the uh, legislature in uh, Michigan um, who has uh, Mr. Lauer. Jim Lower or Lower L O W E R, who's already said he's going to run against Amash, and you know what? He'll he'll probably have the RNC support, right? And that because the the Trump administration and, and the Trump political operation will probably, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a rally in Grand Rapids with Donald Trump to support the person who is running against Justin Amash. Justin right. Amash. That would not. That doesn't wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, but it's such a such a different method from the way the Democrats handle these things, which is basically once you're in, if you win in elections and you contribute to the party fund, you're protect the incumbent, yeah. pro- protect the incumbent. And so to that extent, uh, you think it would uh, make it less less likely that uh, any other Republicans step up to join Justin Amash. I, I think that's right. I, I expect him to be a voice in the wilderness, maybe not entirely, but but certainly, I don't think there's going to be enough uh, Republicans who are going to get on board to get, uh, you know, a two-thirds vote or something like that in the House. Uh, you know, it's not—this is not as easy as it looks. Right. And even were they to get the votes in the House, right, where they really need votes is not in the House but in the Senate. Yes. And and obviously, <laughs> uh, with the Republicans and the majority in the Senate, there's— and particularly with a majority leader in a state, you know, Mitch McConnell's from a state where Donald Trump's really popular still in Kentucky. And so it, it just seems uh, beyond not feasible. But remember, it wasn't feasible that Bill Clinton was going to be removed either to look at the, the other side of the coin. And the, the, ho- the House uh, Republicans made the calculation anyway that they were going to go ahead with impeachment, even though there was... It never stood a chance in the Senate. So, uh, j- just just one um, factual check here. Fact check is uh, you need a two thirds vote in the House to impeach. Correct. I am ninety percent sure. So let me. But, but you definitely need two thirds to remove in to, the Senate. That that I know for in the sure. Senate. Yes. Okay. So there's no way you're getting there. Okay. 
That's interesting. Hey, Peter, let's check that. Check, uh, yeah, fact, fact check that for fact me. Check, in other words, what vote do you need in the House? Because my question is whether Democrats have enough votes on their own if they could do this without any Republicans. So we'll we'll, we'll move on and we'll, we'll check that, okay? Or unless you already see it there. No. Um, meanwhile, um, you have been writing about... Um, Rick, what's happening in Florida with this? The governor saying two counties were hacked into, but I'm not allowed to tell you which two counties. And, right. And beforehand, Rick Scott, the former governor, was saying, "No, this never happened in Florida." So, well, and 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 the county election officials were also. It wasn't just Rick Scott. It was there was this weird statement that Bill Nelson, when Bill Nelson was still the senator who was running against Rick Scott for his own re-election I'm campaign, yeah. who had said that something had happened and issued some sort of vague warning. Marco Rubio issued a similarly vague warning. Uh, and now it has become clear that what happened in advance of 2016... At the time, Rick Scott said, no, 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 they're right, wrong. Right? right. We're clean. We're clean. Right. Yeah. And so what we have now learned is that these... These two unnamed counties, although there are some, there is some reporting that one of them is likely a small county in the Panhandle, Washington County, Washington County. The other one may be the Villages, um, which is this giant retirement community oh, county oh. outside of Orlando. Uh, but that what likely happened ahead of 2016 is that the the Russians went fishing and managed to get access to the voter rolls. So we don't believe that they ever had the ability to change people's votes, but they may have had ability, say you're a voter a bill in, in Washington County, it is entirely possible that they could have declared that you moved to Alabama. And then so when you show up to vote, yeah. you no longer exist. Uh-huh. Uh, so they may not have been able to change votes, but they might have been able to change names and, and in doing so could have. Uh, it doesn't seem like they did, but they would have had the capacity to do that. So now Rick Scott is calling for some investigation. Invest he wants more members of the Senate briefed on what actually did and didn't happen. Uh, and and, you know, it, it's difficult because on one hand, he clearly was taking somewhat of a or more than somewhat of a political stand when he was running for Senate, saying none of this happened on my watch as governor. Uh, but it sounds like legitimately he did not know. It, it, it sounds, yeah, yeah, it sounds right. credible that no one actually, DHS or the FBI, never told him before he was a senator uh, what had actually happened. And it wasn't but, until Bob Mueller's report came out that we found out what actually did happen. Well, it's, it's scary to the extent that... Um, it's one more level where we we learned that the Russians were involved in the 2016 election, not just at this at the national level with these ads that they were running on on the social media platforms, but actually digging into um, key counties in key states, Florida, and who knows whether other states as well, right? Right, and, yeah. and we and, we don't know if it's other we we don't right. think it was other states, but you know now that we. Now that we know they did it one place, who knows? Uh, we think our research department has uh, f completed its uh, in initial and very rapid look at the vote for impeachment in the House. 
uh, is the director of the research department here ready to report? I've got it. I've got it. Let me just first of all give credit to our buddy Andrew Prokop from Vox, who wrote a very whole long explainer about this. Uh, Okay. So, here you go. Uh, First, the House of Representatives has the power to impeach impeach the president. A simple majority is necessary for an article of impeachment to be improved in the House. Each article lays out a charge against the president. Then the process moves to the Senate, where the trial will be held with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding. Finally, and crucially, it takes a two-thirds vote from the Senate to actually convict the president on any count. Conviction on any count would then remove the president from office (laughs) and put the vice president in power so uh answers my question that the democrats don't need any republican in right. the house that's right right that makes yeah. sense right. it would explain how they the republicans did it with when clinton was in office they have enough votes on their own to impeach and and there are a couple of reasons why uh speaker pelosi has not said okay let's just do it right one is she thinks it will uh, suck up all the oxygen in the room, and they won't be able to get anything else done in, a, in terms of legislative priorities. You know, two that it will really divide, you know, more worse than we are right now, and and also maybe play right into Donald Trump's hands, um, and he can just spend the next eighteen months saying, "See, I'm they failed once, and now they're doing this, and I'm still the victim." Blah blah blah, and play the sympathy card. And the third reason is because the reality check is it ain't going to go anywhere in the Senate. Right. So and, why go through it if you know ahead of time there's not a chance that it'll succeed? You could make the argument, as some will, obviously, right. that, it, that it would be something that would need to be done for, for history's sake uh, if if the evidence were to, to be there for it. But the other piece, uh, which uh, sort of dovetails on what you were saying, Bill, is the is you have to look to, if you're Pelosi, at who these, and I'm sure she is, at who the people are who actually make her majority. You know, in, if if Nancy Pelosi is going to be the Speaker of the House, as she is now, uh, you have to win some House seats that have voted for Donald Trump, that will probably vote for Donald Trump again in 2020, and you have to yeah, win she, win these sort of suburban districts that have a lot of suburban Republicans, and I don't know, frankly, what suburban Republicans would think of impeachment. They may not particularly like Donald Trump. You know, they may be they, a lot of them are the people who would have rather had John Kasich or Marco Rubio or something, but that doesn't mean they want to impeach him. Right. I would just say one thing. You know, uh, the American people didn't necessarily want to impeach Richard Nixon when that process started. And the case was made, right? I'm not saying that it's the right or wrong thing to do, but there, there is a case that you can make, and I don't think that they're doing a very effective job of making a case that impeachment is necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one, I wanted to ask you also about uh, another issue that hasn't gotten much attention you've been writing about, and that is um, inaction on disaster relief. Which oh, is, yes. Which is something that Congress used to be able to just get done right i mean that was that was the way of the world but we're now going we're going on years uh since the you know we're we're already a hurricane season past uh a full hurricane season past where some of this disaster relief uh money is still needed uh there's a you know Tyndall Air Force Base down in on the Florida Panhandle still needs to be rebuilt uh because it got walloped and 
this aid just does not seem to be coming. They may finally get a deal uh, this week. Uh, but frankly, a lot of the issue seems to be uh, with Mick Mulvaney, the uh, White House acting chief of staff, who has uh, objected to all sorts of different money. Uh, the combination of the aid to Puerto Rico that the Trump administration doesn't want to necessarily provide the and also this this issue with and this gets a little too far in the weeds, but the harbor maintenance uh, trust fund for places where there are big ports that need there are there's a special fund of money for construction at ports that people like. Richard Shelby, the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, who obviously has large ports on the Gulf Mm -hmm. of Mexico, wants to be able to spend the money out of the fund. And and Mulvaney is trying to use the money for some other purpose. Well, I mean, everything everything in Washington is political, right? So maybe no surprise. But this is one area which used to be where politics played a lesser role, right? Because blue states, red states, whatever, they all have. Yeah, it used to disaster strike, and people would get together and say, "Yeah, we're going to help people out when they need help." But now everything is super charged, politically charged. Hey, Niels, great to see you today. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for your time here on the Bill Press Show at RollCall.com. And now have a great Monday. We'll see you tomorrow. Is the Bill Press Show? One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car. Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.